Welcome to this flight of The Retail Pilot. I'm your host, Ken Pilot, former CEO and current brand advisor, retail tech investor, and board member. I'm thrilled to share with you the insights from some of retail's leaders and legends, as well as my perspective on retail today. This podcast is sponsored by the following. Bluecore's software solution turns anonymous online shoppers into known customers and repeat customers. Bluecore enables retailers to personalize and optimize their email, SMS, and site marketing campaigns by delivering targeted and relevant messages based on where every customer is in their journey. Bluecore replaces annoying high-volume messaging with high-value messaging. Customers include Allo Yoga, Neiman Marcus, and Gap. Welcome back to the Retail Pilot. Here's my KPOV for week ending February 3rd. On the executive change front, looking out there at my former gappers, Jenny Ming has taken on the CEO role of Rothy's. Nancy Green is back in the game, taking on the CEO role at Beyond Yoga. And Dave Powers is at the end of the game. He's retiring after notching a 16% increase, a record increase in the fourth quarter at Decker's. Congratulations, Dave. And finally, Tony Spring started his new gig on Sunday as the CEO of Macy's. On the earnings front, Louis Vuitton had a strong fourth quarter sales, 9% increase, leading the LVMH group, which notched a 5.5% increase for the quarter. Also in luxury, Xenia, the owner of Xenia, Tom Brown, and Tom Ford Fashion, had strong fourth quarter results, up 40% year over year, and when normalized, taking out exchange rates, new businesses, and licensing changes, they were still up 20% for the year. Footwear, as I mentioned earlier, Decker's had a great quarter, up 16%. Skechers was up 4.5% for the quarter. And that was led by strong consumer demand, up 20% in the D2C space, a little bit slower in their wholesale space. Finally, in home, Ethan Allen was down 18%, showing the challenges in that vertical. And when you look at home over the past six months, they're not the only ones who struggled. Restoration hardware stock and Wayfair, their stocks are both down 40% in the past six months. But that's in contrast to Williams-Sonoma, whose stock is up 40% over the past six months. So not all bad news there. And that's the KPOV for last week. Welcome to the Retail Pilot. Today, I have Lauren Schwab and Marissa Vosper, co-founders of Negative, a lingerie and underwear brand focused on minimalist designs, high-quality materials, and a commitment to comfort. Lauren co-founded Negative with a passionate belief that women deserve to love the garments closest to their skin and taught herself every stage of developing, fitting, and producing beautiful and functional intimate apparel. Lauren started her career in finance, working at two globally recognized investment management firms, and was selected as one of Women's Wear Daily's 40 Under 40 list of industry notables who are changing the face of retail, fashion, and the beauty industry. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with degrees in art history and diplomatic history. When she isn't working on negative, she loves spending time with her husband and three little kids. Marissa also attended the University of Pennsylvania, where she earned degrees in political science and Spanish. At negative, 
Marissa is focused on all aspects of brand strategy, communications, marketing, web, and customer experience. Prior to Negative, Marissa worked at two large branding agencies for a variety of clients, including Fortune 500 companies, fashion labels, luxury brands, and startup businesses. She was also honored as part of the Forbes 30 Under 30 list of entrepreneurs for art and style. She currently resides in New York City with her husband and three sons. Marissa and Lauren were kind enough to offer our listeners a special promotion of 25% off on Negative through Valentine's Day. The promo code is PILOT25. Welcome to today's Retail Pilot. I'm so excited to have a relatively under-the-radar company, Negative, that offers product in the women's lounge and underwear space. And I have the founders, Marissa Vosper and Lauren Schwab with me. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much. It's Thanks. good to see you. Good to be here. And you guys, you're in different cities, so you're managing this from two different, one Manhattan, and Lauren, where are you? In Toronto. Toronto. Different countries. Even better. I love that. This could be a first. Well, thanks for joining me. So excited to hear more about Negative. I learned about the brand, I think, as I mentioned to you when I reached out from my wife, who received the package from you, put on the product, and then told me that she was throwing every piece of underwear out that she had so she could stock up on Negative, which she has a lot of underwear, so that's not a great thing for me, but I'm happy that she found a new brand. Would love to hear just about your journey, how you got into this business. Well, that is so wonderful to hear. It's music to our ears, but we'd also say not the first time that we've heard that. So I'm Lauren Schwab, and I met Marissa as a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. We were actually rushing the same sorority. So it was quite serendipitous that we crossed paths and both immediately respected each other's sense of fashion, stayed very good friends through college. And upon graduation, I went into a career in finance and Marissa went into brand marketing. And we stayed in those careers for the next eight years. But while we were pursuing those we often reflected on what we really enjoyed and what we really wanted to do. And so we started taking classes at FIT at night just for fun. And really what this gave us is an opportunity to sort of think about different business opportunities. And at the time, we had lots of brands that we loved and are ready to wear in accessories. But when it came to our underwear, we never really thought about it. We actually had items in our drawer from our high school days because it just wasn't an area that we invested in. And we felt like that was a real opportunity for something new. And so as the good Penn students that we were, we started by research and we spent a lot of time sort of canvassing the market, looking at the product that was available. It eventually took us to a intimate apparel fair in Paris called Interfilier. It's this incredible fair where both brands as well as suppliers come together. So in this large building, you can really see how a product is made. And initially our thought was, is the product in the US different than what's in Europe? Because often you hear that European women love their lingerie 
and American women didn't love their underwear. They didn't really even think about their underwear. So we went to all the different booths, looking at the brands that we've never heard of, trying to understand, is something here different? And is there really an opportunity to potentially just bring these European brands to the US? And I think what we found is often underwear fell into two different categories, sort of the super functional or the sort of beautiful, but not necessarily comfortable underwear. And it was just this incredible education. From there, we took these ideas back to New York and really dug deep to try to find sample rooms that specialized in bra making. We started from the very ground up, cobbling together all the different pieces to make the product ourselves. And it was this lengthy journey because we were working full time while we were doing this across about four years. And did you just within that period of going to Paris and coming back, did you land on a name or where did that happen within your journey? In the beginning, we had a placeholder name and really it was just the formation of a concept, which we knew what the what was about, but we didn't get into sort of the actual expression of what the brand would be called or look like until we were probably a year out from launch. So there were many years where we were truly just focused on product development on our nights and weekends. And then as we got closer to knowing that product was a real thing and we'd be able to make it, then we thought a lot more about how we would bring it to the market. It's funny. My grandfather launched a brassiere company years and years ago called Wonderbra. <laughs> really? Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. He sold it to Playtex of Canada, who then sold it to Victoria's Secret. So I've got a little bit of that in my blood somewhere, but yeah, he had to find a cutting room in Manhattan to work on his original product. And it, it all started here. Anyway, just an aside that I thought was kind of forgotten about that. So this is, you're into this now after you go on your exploratory trip to Paris. Did you find any, were there any brands out there that were sort of the hero brands that you were looking at in terms of? their placement in the market, their style, the fabrication that were inspiring you along your journey? I think that there wasn't a specific brand that really captured everything that we were trying to achieve. We felt like there were really beautiful, minimalist, high quality products coming from brands like Eras, but the price point was so high that it didn't seem accessible for every day. And often the material was so delicate that it wasn't something you could wear and wash for an everyday. And so I think that was often the brand that we looked at from an aspirational purpose, but it didn't achieve that sort of contemporary price point that we were looking for. So you're into this for two or three years in terms of your research. How long did it take you to do your research, to figure out where the space was in the market, and then create product that was actually for sale? The whole process, all said and done from sort of FIT classes to launch was about four years. And I would say maybe two of those years were really intensely in the world of product development and sort of market opportunity analysis. You know, truly, we felt like there were many opportunities in the intimate apparel market one of which was making better product. And I think Lauren articulated some of those areas we saw, which was 
the bifurcation of beautiful, fanciful things, ornamented, decorated, and functional, but not well-designed, sort of almost matronly was what existed on the other side. But we also felt like, as Lauren said, there was a price point opportunity where there were a lot of really luxurious, beautiful brands that made garments that were not accessible for everyday wear for most women, especially our peer set of women at the time. And then there were these more mass market brands that most of us grew up with and would continue to shop, but didn't feel like they were well-made nor reflective of a more contemporary woman's sense of style. And there wasn't really anyone in the middle. We looked at sort of ready-to-wear and we saw this plethora of brands. At the time, Lauren and I were reflecting back, it was sort of like the days of Alexander Wang and Rag and Bone and Helmut Lang. And Intimates didn't have a corollary. And we would look at women at, you know, sample sales and Equinox and we'd be like, what is she wearing underneath? And it was an old bra from high school and a fraying pair of hanky panky underwear. And it just felt like the price point opportunity, the product opportunity was really evident to us. And the, the last opportunity that we really saw in that period of time was we had done some peer research, like quantitative studies that we sent out focus group sort of surveys to our friends and peers. And a lot of women talked about how they would shop at Victoria's Secret, the market leader, and they were so embarrassed to be seen with the shopping bag that they would hide it in their handbag. At the time I was working in brand marketing and I was like, wow, they own this much of the market and they have customers that are too embarrassed to even be seen with the shopping bag. Like clearly there's an opportunity to make a brand that women feel not only proud of, but that they love to support because that clearly existed in so many other spaces. So we felt like the confluence of those variables really painted the picture to us of working very hard on making a better product, but also designing a brand thoughtfully that would speak to women in 2014. As you were researching, developing the product, the brand, which took four years, as you mentioned, were you still working at other jobs for a period of time and then decided we're going to stop and go at this full time? You mentioned that you raised no money, which is incredibly brave. You completely self-funded and I believe are still self-funded today, which is a whole other thing. But how did you manage to do this? Did you Were you working other jobs at the time? Yes. During the full four years, we were working other full-time jobs. So I was in finance at a investment firm and Marissa was at a brand strategy firm. And the investment firm, typical investing hours. So you're there, you know, at least 15 hours a day. So it was very much a nights and weekends moonlighting exercise, which is part of the reason that it took four years to actually come to the final point where we sold our first garment. And now you're co-CEOs today? We call ourselves co-founders and we don't necessarily feel like there's a need to give ourselves other titles. Got it. You know, it's often, it's funny, you look at some of the other co-founders slash co-CEOs that are partners. How would you explain your different skill sets? How do you complement each other? Marissa, what do you take on? And Lauren, what do you focus on? As Lauren mentioned, my background pre-negative was in brand strategy. I worked at a few big branding agencies in New York City and, you know, Thinking about the creation and the articulation of brands to fit in a market, as well as how those brands translate across all ways in which you touch your customer from product to customer service, to web experience, to communications was where I spent my focus before we launched. And so that translates directly to a lot of where I spend my time now. 
most of what I oversee is all things marketing, all things web experience, all things customer. But I think what Lauren and I share is a really strong aesthetic point of view. And it's 99% of the time very aligned. And so we both have a lot of oversight of both the brand's creation and direction, as well as the collection's creation and direction. And then Lauren can certainly speak to the other areas that she focuses on as well. So I focus on all things financial operations and product. So I think I am very analytical and data-oriented and care deeply about the financial discipline of the business. So I work very closely with our CFO and have led the operations component. And then my family's background is was in children's wear manufacturing. So despite me never having actually worked for the family business, it was certainly part of our dinner table conversation from early years. So through those relationships, that's how I've learned the manufacturing side of the business. I think it just came to me. So your family, I believe, had the licensing rights to Ralph Lauren. That is correct. Yes. So family's been in the apparel business for a while. So it's in your blood. Yes. Much to my father's chagrin. I think he was very comfortable with me being in finance. And after having run the family business for much of his life, he said, why would you ever choose to go into manufacturing? Yeah, I'm sure that was a fun conversation. Um, <laughs> so you've developed this brand. You've now Negative. How'd you come up with the name Negative? And tell me about the pushback there may have been when you came up with Negative. Marissa, I mean, you're the marketing maven. I'm sure there was some marketing strategy around this. Share that with us. You know, it was a lot of brainstorming between Lauren and myself. And I think we knew what we wanted the brand to be about, which was sort of this commitment to minimalism, pairing back of elements, fewer, better things, less is more. Like those were words that we threw around all the time in the beginning days that really guided us towards what fabrics we chose, what silhouettes we chose. And certainly as we got into the process of naming and brand design development, it guided us. And I think there were many other names on the drawing board at the time, but there was something very fundamental about wanting to be very different than our peers. And so a lot of the brands in our space were either very French or European sounding, you know, like Kiki de Montparnasse, Agent Provocateur, La Perla, and we knew we definitely wanted to be a, an English word. And a lot of them sounded very girly and very over-the-top embellished, Victoria's Secret, hanky-panky, Spanx. And so we wanted something that was not at all that, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that sort of spoke to women in a much more direct way. From my time in branding, I knew we wanted something like short, sweet, easy to say, easy to pronounce. We didn't want any tricks of our spelling. And then we sort of liked the idea of having a name that made you think, that was a little bit, like a little bit provocative because underwear is a category that provokes things. And so I think negative was the culmination of all those things. It captured the essence of the meaning, but it also felt very definitively an American brand that was trying to do something very different from what was existing in the market. Who is in the competitive space that you feel you win customers from and make them negative for life? I think negative is unique in that our product is very high quality raw materials that we hand select from European heritage mills that many of these high-end luxury brands also use. However, our price point allows us to be more accessible given the direct-to-consumer model. And so I think there isn't necessarily a brand that's doing exactly 
what we're doing. At the time that we launched, we viewed Victoria's Secret as a direct competitor because we felt like they weren't servicing the customer in the way that we thought that they should be serviced. And I think today, of course, with Skims, I think what they're doing is amazing. A difference is the quality of the product. We deeply care about creating beautiful product. And I think Skims feels a bit more fast fashioned. I think you're right. I think just looking at comparing the websites, you can easily see the difference in the DNA, the quality, the silhouettes, the product, how it's presented. It's really quite a contrast what you've done on negative versus what Skim's done. Again, Skim's probably addressing a bigger market, I think slightly less expensive than your product. I think you're, it's fair to say the average bra is about $70, $75 for negative. Yes, around that. Yeah. yeah, in that price range. So I think it does come through in terms of what you're trying to communicate online visually. And I think that's super exciting. And the majority of your sales today, as I understand it, are all coming direct to consumer online only at this point. Is that correct? Let's As talk today, a little. that's true. Yeah. I'd love to get into that a bit because I know we talked roughly sales or in that 40, 50 million plus minus, maybe minus category, just to give people a sense of range of where the top line is. But where do you see, or how do you see really scaling this business going forward? Again, just to underscore, you haven't raised any outside capital and you make money. So those are two things that sound so strange to me. Like I haven't had this conversation before with any companies that are called a startup. But, you know, clearly this is negative growth we're talking about. Sounds like an oxymoron, but there I said it and we're seeing it. So how does negative continue to grow to scale? And I assume, again, without having raised this outside capital, the pressure being applied is the pressure that you're applying. Marissa, There's you want to start? And Lauren, you can finish on this one. This is a big topic because when I look at the space, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is where are the stores? Are there any wholesale partners? And those would be the first two obvious steps to me, but just love to hear where you're going with this journey to grow the business. Maybe just to speak at like a higher level, and these are hot topics internally, and I think Lauren will speak to them, but we believe fundamentally that fast growth isn't the best growth necessarily, especially in a fashion product. That the best brands, when you look at sort of the history of the Calvin Kleins, the Ralph Laurens, the, you know, they weren't built overnight. They were built slowly. The Nikes, you know, they built brand allegiance by making incredible products day after day. And so while many of our peers were very focused on getting big faster, we think about staying true to making a superior product over time and winning the customer with the experience over time. And so growth for us is much more methodical and thoughtful because we don't believe that if you captured one sale, it necessarily means she's going to be loyal to you forever. And so we just think a lot differently about how to get there. I also just laugh that back when I was working in brand strategy, so many big brands would come to us and they wanted to regain what they had when they were small. And my creative director at the time would always say, everyone wants to be cool. You can't be big and cool at the same time. And so I think about that a lot about, you know, there is something about being smaller, being more under the radar being less known that gets you farther than if you immediately become big and bust. But anyhow, that doesn't speak to channel expansion. So 
when we initially launched Negative, we experimented with many of these other channels. We did lots of trunk shows. We had pop-ups in stores in Soho. We did a shop and shop at Stephen Allen. We had a early partnership with Nordstrom. And I think what we realized is there was such huge opportunity and profitability through direct-to-consumer. And so that's where we have focused all of our energy for the last 10 years. But as Marissa alluded, we talk daily about where we will grow. And I think we see opportunities in all of the potential channels, both wholesale, retail. We even talk about Amazon. We do see there's lots of opportunity for growth. Let's take a quick break with a word from our sponsors. Predict Spring is a global point of sale platform live in 22 countries. The platform includes mobile POS, endless aisle, fulfillment, inventory management, and client telling, creating a true omni experience for customers and associates. Predict Spring powers Suit Supply, Converse, Lovesack, Decium, Janie and Jack, and Beauclair. Breakfast helps brands like HelloFresh, Perfume.com, and QVC increase revenue across Meta and TikTok by creating hundreds of user-generated content video ads. The Breakfast Creator Network, with over 5,000 strong, produces original content that is authentic to each platform and built to drive performance, all done in as little as three weeks. Check out Breakfast.io. That's B-R-K-F-S-T dot I-O. So you've done pop-ups, it sounds like, in the past. And is there a chance that we'll see something like that in 2024? Is that on the roadmap for this year or maybe beyond? Not to pin you down, but to pin you down. We don't have something scheduled currently, but something that we are very good at because we are so lean is making things happen quickly. So it's not out of question, but it's not something that we've planned. You mentioned lean. And you also mentioned prior to jumping on the podcast, you have a pretty lean team. How lean is your team? How many people are working at Negative today? We currently have about 15 full-time employees. Uh, that is lean. Good for you. You guys are really minding the store carefully and profitably. That's a discipline that I don't see a, as much of out there today as I'm sure many wish they'd had when they were starting companies 10, 12, 15 years ago. As you mentioned, a lot of companies were very focused on driving top line without any regard to bottom line. It sounds like you really flipped the paradigm over and you've been focused very much on building a profitable company and a well-managed brand. So congratulations on that. That's exciting. We also got really good at working with freelance talent over the years because we didn't have, for many years, resources to hire those roles full-time. And so I think we really learned that muscle of how do you work with a fractional version of that role? And when do you get big enough that it really merits full-time? And I reflect often that when I speak to friends and founders that have raised money and gone through challenging times and had to pull back, they will often say, I think we could do it with half the amount of people. And so we do it with half the amount of people <laughs> every day. And that's definitely been part of our 10-year history, doing more with less. How have you been able to grow the brand in terms of just marketing? I mean, that takes money, you know, 
the customer acquisition costs are higher now based on the challenges that have come about since the iOS 14 change. Let's talk a little bit about marketing and how you're actually, what you're doing to get the name negative out there. You know, when I reflect on this question, I feel like fundamentally, we would just say our product is our best form of marketing. And that if you're a company that focuses on making an exceptional product that's better than what exists, it will over time sell itself. And word of mouth, for sure, is a huge part of our growth story. Um, because once we've acquired a customer, we have incredible retention and incredible repeat purchase. So I think that's a primary area of focus, which isn't maybe what a traditional marketing arm would talk about. But, you know, we're a digital brand. And so we invest where our customers are and we want to be telling the story of how incredible our product is wherever customers are spending their time. And so at the moment, no surprise, that is largely social media. But when we started, we focused a lot on press. And I think we were probably the last chapter of marketing where press was so meaningful. We launched with an article in the Wall Street Journal and it immediately built a customer base. Mm -hmm. And I think you probably couldn't replicate that today. So our, our marketing has changed as the dynamics of where our customer spends her time have changed, but a lot of that is online. What advice would you give to brands that are growing today that are trying to connect with the customer, get their name out there? Where are you seeing some success? You mentioned, obviously, there was press that was helpful. You've touched on what you've done or what you're doing in, with social media. But a new brand coming up today, where did you find the greatest leverage getting the brand to where it is today? A lot of the way that we started was very old fashioned. We really thought about how can we get our product in front of the most amount of people in a hands-on way. And so Lauren and I really leveraged our networks, a lot of our pen network and our you know collective networks from life outside of pen. And we started with trunk shows and we would travel around the United States to places where we knew a collection of people and we would host events and bring our product and showcase it. And there's something to be said about the hands-on interaction with networks of women is powerful. And I still believe that launching a brand and immediately dumping money into paid advertising isn't the way to go. Like you need to have some amount of a customer base before paid advertising starts to click because there has to be some amount of credibility or knowledge or awareness of the brand to have it resonate online. So if you're just starting out, I do think that there's an aspect of trunk shows and being in person with your customer base that is invaluable. Any partnerships or celebrities? I think I saw somewhere that you did a collaboration with Jenny Kane, but others, like maybe tell us a little bit about that collaboration and the thoughts around collaborations or working potentially with influencers, how that can help a brand scale? We've done a handful of collaborations in our history. Our first was with Goop. Second was with Man Repeller back when Man Repeller existed. And then the most recent was with Jenny Kane. We're very methodical about who we partner with because partnerships are a lot of sort of extra work. But I think finding a like-minded brand that can tell an interesting story that we aren't telling on our own to an audience that we think has growth potential for negative is appealing to us. And I think there are some brands that do it beautifully. We would love to do more, but there's probably only a handful of brands that we think would be the most exciting. I'll put it out there to manifest if they're listening. We would love to collaborate with The Row. I think they should have an amazing underwear capsule and we should make it. You know, we touched a little bit on technology. We won't go too deeply into it, but 
One question I have related to technology, the challenges around fit. And I know obviously negative is much more than just underwear. There's amazing, amazing loungewear product as well. So it's really a line that's made for her that begins at home. Much of it may stay at home, but it's a beautiful line. But going back to the core concept, which is underwear and fit being so important, how do you deal with fit relative to challenges around returns? Is that a, I got to believe that that's a, an issue for you. As it relates to technology, we don't incorporate any technology in our fit processing or through our website. Realistically, Marissa and I are not tech people, but what we do deeply care about is fit. We spend a huge amount of time and energy on fitting and fitting across lots of different bodies. One of the core reasons that we selected the materials that we use during throughout our collections is because they're very adaptable. And regardless of what the measuring tape says, people carry their body in different ways. And so it's very difficult to use something as basic as a measuring tape to guide somebody into the correct fitting product. And so I think, you know, technology can't really solve for a poorly fitting garment. What we do is spend a lot of time with our technical designer, putting our product on lots of different bodies, people who have similar measurements, but have potentially different, carry their bodies differently and adapt the way the garment fits to ensure that the product works for as many people as possible. I think we also invest deeply into our customer service so that our customer service can communicate directly with their customers. If they try a size and it doesn't work for them, how can we quickly get those customers into the right fitting garment? One platform that I come across or space that I've come across for fit specifically is the ability to read someone's body size, shape, measurements digitally, either with a smartphone or with an iPad. Have you had a chance to look at any of those platforms? I'm thinking of a couple specifically. There's 3D Look, there's Fit Match, and then a company that I work with out of Israel called Sizer. But they all have the ability to render with fairly high degree of accuracy, you know, body size. Have you had a chance to review any of those? We've looked at a variety of fit tools over the life of our business. And I think there's still a gap of making those experiences feel luxurious and premium. And, you know, the same experience of walking into a beautiful lingerie department, which many of the experiences are poor. And so I think we continue to focus on how do we make the shopping experience feel the way we want it to feel. And I think technology can do that. But specifically when it comes to fit tools, we're not quite there yet. And so, again, the way that we sort of approach it is technology can't solve your way out of a badly fitting garment. But a great fitting garment has a pretty low return rate, which our return rates are fairly low given our category. Let's pivot to some lessons learned. Uh, you guys have been in business for 14 years in total. As a startup, looking back through the rearview mirror, what are the top challenges that you had to overcome? I think one of the biggest is manufacturing when it comes specifically to intimates, because in order for you to be profitable for the factory, you have to produce volume. 
So when you're a small company and you're not able to write the orders that meet their minimums, it's very difficult to find partners that are willing to work with you. And that really is across all parts of the supply chain, from the fabric mills to the trim suppliers to the accessories. So actually getting the product made and finding the right partners who have realistic expectations for your growth trajectory is really hard. I think especially during the time that we started where there's so many businesses who overnight are writing, you know, many tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of units. I think the expectation that you can start small and eventually get there quickly, meaning the next year was just not realistic for us, given that we were self-funded and not taking outside capital. So finding those right partners is difficult. And frankly, even as far as we've grown, still finding those partners is challenging. Where's the majority of your product being made today? Today, it's made predominantly in China. We started with a factory that was based in Medellin, Colombia, that had a free trade agreement with the U.S., so we didn't have to pay duties on those goods, which was amazing. And we're now countersourcing with partners in Sri Lanka. Are you receiving goods in Mexico to also avoid some of those? A number of companies are doing that, the uh, the de minimis rule where you're allowed to ship in. I think it's under $800 tax-free, so that's a pretty good deal. It's something we're aware of and we've looked into. And frankly, one of the other challenges is 3PL services and finding the right 3PL partner. And... We've certainly gone through a variety of 3PLs throughout our life. We have a really excellent 3PL that's taken many years for us to get to this really good place. And while we're aware of the opportunity in Mexico, we're not willing to disrupt what we have currently. If you were to go back and give yourself advice, what advice would you give yourselves now 14 years later? that you wish you had 14 years ago? I like this question because it was really difficult for me to leave my financial job to launch negative. As much as I was excited about the opportunity, it was an idea. Whereas my role at the investment firm was a clear path to independence and my ability to sort of provide the lifestyle that I wanted. So the night before negative launch was full of lots of apprehension and fear. But I think looking back, taking risks and trying new things that scare me was really the best way to yield amazing personal growth. And I think it's easy to stay where you are. It's hard to try something new. And if you have done all the hard work, put in a lot of thought, I would encourage anyone to take that risk to do something new. And I think anything great comes from taking small steps. So when you're at the very beginning, it's never big steps. It's always these small little steps that you have to take. And at the very beginning, lots of people thought what we were doing was a hobby and they thought it was cute. And I think I had to have this confidence that in myself and my abilities and to keep going, to keep making those small decisions so that 14 years later, I could look back and see how far we've come. Marissa, I have a question for you. Three greatest challenges facing negative today. I think 
One of them we've sort of touched upon, which is how do you continue to find new profitable channels for customer acquisition and where do you place your bets? And there's some tried and true paths, but you can't boil the ocean. So you have to pick a lane and hopefully do it well. And there's been a lot of internal debate about which is that lane to choose. So stay tuned. I would also say that for me specifically, balancing how do you stay true to that core specialness, but also allow for the expansion of the business, both in terms of where the brand needs to go, where the product needs to go. I don't think the best brands are rigid in what they are. I believe they are adaptable to their times. And so Lauren and I have a lot of discussions around what does that mean for trying new product categories? What does that mean for trying new marketing channels? And how do you be nimble, but also be cohesive? So I think that's a challenge for any business, but certainly a challenge for us as we've grown quite dramatically. And then the last, you know, 2023, we saw a lot of challenge from price competition. So many of our peers struggled coming out of the 2022 boom and were on bargain basement all of 2023. So the amount of sales and promotions and price slashing and sort of distressed acquisitions in our space was high. And I'm curious to see if that will maintain through 2024, but we just keep on keeping on. So I look forward to challenges. Cool. You guys ready for rapid fire? Let's do it. Ready. Here we go. All right. Lauren, favorite brand you like to wear? Every day I wear something negative and then also love Kate, The Row, Christopher Esper. Marissa, favorite travel destination? The favorite places I've ever been are different than my current life, but ever, one of my favorites ever was Jose Ignacio in Uruguay. I spent a lot of time in Seoul for work, which is an amazing city. And then Lauren and I spent a lot of time in Paris in Starting Negative, and I have so many fond memories of those places. But my current life with three young children, I spent a lot of time in Miami and the Bahamas. I'm from Boulder and Southampton. So a little bit closer to home in our current chapter. Marissa. Most influential person in the design space? I think there's so many incredible women in design and a few that stand out to me as influential are Phoebe Philo, Norma Kamali, and Kelly Wurstler. Kelly Wurstler is amazing. I have to agree with you there. I love what she does in the home space in particular. Lauren, favorite stream TV series? Schitt's Creek or Friday Night Lights. All right. The final question, who would you most like to know is wearing your product? We thought about this question separately and both came back with the same answer, which is the Olsen twins. And with that, we'll land this flight of the retail pilot. Marissa, Lauren, thank you both so much for joining me today and sharing your negative journey, which is really quite positive. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's flight of the retail pilot. And please, Give us a review on your favorite podcast platform.